0: This is the third in a series of talks about the life of Nehemiah, one of the most remarkable characters in the Old Testament. He was called by God to go back to Jerusalem. Even though he was in exile, God called him out to go back to Jerusalem to oversee the building of the walls and the gates that had been torn down and burned, and to restore the honour of the name of God, to restore the honour of his name and the name of his people. And we're looking at chapter three today, which goes into a great deal of detail about um, who did what during that rebuilding program. And the, talk, the, the title of this talk in the programme is Dedication. And if you've looked at chapter three, you will know that it would take a huge amount of dedication to read it word for word. So we have abridged the reading slightly today. I'm gonna to invite Schumann to come up. He's going to read a slightly shortened version uh, of this chapter. Otherwise, we could be here for quite some time. So Schumann, if you'd like to come forward.
1: case um, if someone has a compelling uh, feeling about reading really everything, uh, you can find the page uh, in the Pew Bible 467. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 3, the abridged version. Elijah, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and built the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated and as far as the tower of Hananiah, the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Securus son of Imri built next to them. The next section was repaired by the men of Pacoah, but their noble would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Also, one of the goldsmiths repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Shalom, son of Halohash, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Next to him, Maranath, son of Uriah, repaired the, another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priest from the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashem made repairs in front of their house and next to them Azariah made repairs beside his house above the horse gate the priest made repairs each in front of his, his own house next to them Meshullam made repairs opposite his living quarters next to him Melchysha one of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants, opposite the inspection gate, and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheet gate, the goldsmiths and merchants make repairs. Mm-hmm. This is Well done.
0: So often often the, uh, the reader will pray for the preacher, but I feel I ought to pray for the reader. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Thank you, Sheila. Thank you. So, um, Mark kicked off this series a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he spoke on chapter one and it was entitled Foundations. And he gave the historical context of the Babylonian exile. So we came to understand why Nehemi- Nehemiah was in the citadel of Susa, cut there a King Artaxerxes. And in that talk, he also asked you to remember the chair. I don't know if you remember. You're nodding, that's good, <laughs> they have remembered the chair. And that was a reference to the Rock project because of course we are at a crucial stage in our own building project here at All Saints. And I'll say a couple of things about that later, but I think it is also worth, for the sake of people here who may not know what the Rock project is and we use that as shorthand all the time, Rock is an acronym and it stands for Reimagining Our Church for the Kingdom. And it's a building program, um, a project that's been underway here for more than seven years. And it's a, it's a program where we, whereby we hope to reorder this building. A lot of work needs doing with the lighting and the heating system among others. And also we're hoping to build a new entrance on this side of the church on the north side so that we can provide a more accessible and welcoming entrance to the church. So Nehemiah was in exile. But like so many of his countrymen, he had risen to a position of trust and high rank, presumably because King Artaxerxes saw in Nehemiah the the qualities that still make him so attractive to us today. He saw that he was a man of integrity, a man of honor, a man that could be trusted. And um, since I've been preparing this talk, it's, it's struck me how many people have said to me, oh, I love Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. I love that story. Um, And it is a great book. I don't know if you've read the whole book. We're on chapter three. We'll we'll be having at least two more talks about it. But read the book. It's quick. It's easy to read. The language is really accessible. It's a really pacey book. It's a great story. Possibly with the exception of chapter three, which as we've seen is quite hard going. Um, But the good thing about chapter three is that it records in great detail who built which parts of the walls and gates. And it's a very long list of names and places. But I think that's really great because it makes it personal. It's so detailed. And it's also a great illustration of the teamwork, the incredible teamwork that that went on to, to get that project done in an extraordinary 52 days. So chapters one and two, which we've already looked at, talk about the miraculous sequence of events that brought Nehemiah to Jerusalem, and his secret nighttime survey of the walls and gates. But from that point at the end of chapter two, when the people said, let us rebuild the walls, this is an all action story. And one of the things, and I know Pam's gonna agree with me here, one of the things I love about the list of participants is how democratic it is. They were all in it together. It wasn't just a group of stonemasons and labourers that were doing the work. Among the list of people that undertook the work, there are goldsmiths and perfume makers and priests and, yes, daughters. The women were out there as well, getting stuck into the work. And what is remarkable is that it's recorded here. They actually recorded that the daughters were out there as well. And towards the end of this chapter, there are many instances of people repairing the section of wall directly opposite their house or their living quarters. And that's, that's great too, because it's practical and it's pragmatic. There were some who felt that the work was beneath them. Notably, verse 5 says, The next section was repaired by the men of Takara, but the na- their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. And in fact, the nobles and officials don't always come out of this story very well. And we'll see that in later talks, especially when we get to chapter 5, where Nehemiah had to tackle corruption and usury amongst his own people. And it is such a great story. It is tempting to sneak ahead a couple of chapters to look at the brilliant ways that Nehemiah encouraged his people to come together and work as a team, and the ways he demonstrated that they could keep themselves safe while well, one was building, the person next to them was praying. But that's someone else's servant, so I shall have to do that alone. Suffice to say that Nehemiah must have been an extraordinarily charismatic leader to motivate a disaffected and disconnected group of people to come together to undertake the task. And it's worth remembering here that the Babylonian exile wasn't like that other great exile in the time of Moses. The people weren't enslaved in Babylon. They'd settled in very nicely. They'd they'd started businesses, and frankly they were, some of them were quite reluctant to leave. Even when they were free to do so, they were reluctant to leave and come back to Jerusalem. And many of those who had returned wouldn't live in the city. They preferred to live outside in the country because it was safer, they were safer from attack. So Nehemiah had the additional task of persuading the people to come back, to come back into the city, to settle, and then to start rebuilding the walls. So Nehemiah wasn't just a rebuilder, he was a reformer, but of course he was God's man. He was God's man for that moment in time, he was a man of integrity, a prayerful and practical man, a man with a can-do attitude, a man of faith. Now, does anybody here listen to Desert Island Discs? Yay! Older and younger, that's really great. It's a terrific program, I love it. And I was, just had to be in the car driving somewhere the other day when Desert Island Discs came on. And it was the episode that featured Sunita Alain. Did anybody hear her? No, maybe not. So she made history recently when she became master of Jesus College, Cambridge. And that was a post previously held by Ian White. Does anybody remember Ian White? Yeah, yeah. Ian uh, and Margaret used to worship here in this church and Ian is now Vice-Chancellor of the University of Bath. But Sunita Alain was the first woman to hold the post. The clue is in the title, Master. And she's the first Black Master of any Oxbridge College. So a remarkable woman by any standard. And she's a charismatic and attractive character. She's really easy to listen to. And she told the story of how her family emigrated from Barbados to Walthamstow. Quite a change. And Lauren Laverne asked her if, growing up, she could remember the first real barrier that she faced. And her answer really struck me because she she really didn't... She didn't really seem to understand the question as it was put to her. She said... And She must have encountered a a lot of barriers. She said, barriers? You overcome them. You swerve around them as as they float past you in the flow of time. You don't think of the things you didn't do. And later in the interview, she talked about how she coped as one of the very few non-white, non-middle class undergraduates at Cambridge. And she coped by joining everything. She got stuck into everything. She joined clubs and bands and societies. And she summed up that section by saying, life is sometimes more exciting when you say yes. And it struck me then that she and Nehemiah would have really liked one another. I think Nehemiah is an incredibly contemporary character. And there are so many parallels here. When challenges arose, they both faced them with positivity and practicality and dedication and without becoming defensive or cynical. I've no idea if Sunita Alain has a faith but we do know that Nehemiah's faith was at the heart of everything that he did and this is at the heart of what I want to draw out of this passage because in addition to Nehemiah's natural skills and talents which were abundant He was a man who cared deeply about the honor and reputation of God and everything he did he did not for himself but for the honor and reputation of God and his people And when the news arrived from Judah of the abject state of Jerusalem he cared enough to do something about it and he impractical as he was able and capable as he was he didn't just rush in with a manly and human plan. He began with prayer, and not just prayer, but prayer of repentance. God loves our plans, sometimes. <laughs> but he loves our hearts more. He cares far more about our hearts than our plans. He wants our hearts first. And I think if you look again at chapter one, verse four tells us so much about the man It says when I heard these things I sat down and wept for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and then when he'd done that he prayed this amazing prayer where he praises God he reminds him of his covenant with his people he pleads and more than pleads he almost demands God's attention He repents, really important. He repents not only on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his father's house and the Israelites. And then he goes on to remind God of his judgments and his promises, his covenant promises. And he asks for his protection. It is a brilliant model of prayer. Absolutely brilliant model of prayer. And in fact, more than a prayer, it's almost a proclamation And how did Nehemiah find the confidence to pray like this? Because he had just spent days weeping and mourning and fasting. And we can all learn a lesson from Nehemiah. God knew his heart. He placed him there for that moment in time. And he was always going to say yes. He was God's man for that moment. And there are people sitting out there now. You are people that God has placed here for this moment. And God wants to say yes. And I'd like to, this is where I'd like to reflect just for a moment on the Rock Project, the Reimagining Our Church for the Kingdom project. And to suggest that everything, and I mean everything that we undertake as a rock team, but as a church, needs to come out of a heart of love and honour for God. And the Rock journey has been a long one, and I see people out there who are part of that. I see Jeff, been a part of that team for a long time. Last week, I was looking at the rock page on the All Saints Western website. Um, it's a brilliant resource. Uh, I don't know if you visited it lately, but it, it will give you up-to-date information about the project, and it will also give you access to the reports and consultations that have taken place. And I noticed that the first report was made to this church in 2013, It's a long time ago. And at that point, we'd already had eight meetings, just to get to that point. And a sentence really still sprung out at me, the stated hope that the renewed building should be a sign of God's activity in the world. And the journey has had its ups and downs, highs and lows. And the highs, some of the highs for me, have been visiting other churches across the country and seeing how in extraordinarily creative and practical and sacrificial ways faithful people have been transforming their church buildings. And I'll always remember something that um, a church member in Hereford said to me when after he'd showed us around and talked through the project that they'd just brought to completion, he said, you need to remember that this isn't going to be a finance journey. This is going to be a faith journey. And that was a a really important word to me. And of course, as an artist, I've really loved thinking of ways that we might transform and um, improve this building, make it more beautiful, more functional and more accessible. The plaques, I am going to dare to mention the plaques. The plaques around the walls have been a bit of a bone of contention. They probably will always be a bone of contention, and at times I've been troubled by them as memorials to wealth and status. But, but recently I've been humbling my heart as well. And I, I'm looking at them in a different lens, through a different lens um, as a reminder of the great cloud of witnesses who have worshipped in this church for hundreds of years and who have invested in the fabric and the people of this church. I wonder if there was a plaque for Nehemiah, what it would say. It might say, Nehemiah, a man after God's heart who helped to rebuild the walls. And here's a thought, if there was a plaque here for you, what might it say? It's worth, it's worth a moment's thought. I don't imagine for a minute that you, you wish to glorify yourself by putting a plaque on the wall, but I wonder, for legacy, for future generations, what you would like to say. I might like to say, Rachel, worshipped here for ooh, lots and lots and lots of years. She loved this place. And I do love this place, and I don't mean the building, although it's very important to me. I mean you, all of you. I love you because you're my church. And whether you love the plaques or whether you really don't, it's good to remember those who have worshipped here before us. Now going back to the rock journey, there have been lows as well, not least the long and grinding and frustrating process of our planning application. And to those on the team who have shown outstanding dedication and skill to keep this process going, not least Tom, I salute you. I'd like to just share with you a moment in this process that I believe, and I think the whole Rock team believed, was highly significant and it is absolutely relevant to this passage. It was just last year we'd hit yet another hurdle with the planning application, another negative response, another list of demands for ever more detailed reports and costly reports at that. And safe to say, it is safe to say, we were a bit fed up. We may even have been grumpy. We were grumpy and quite indignant. And God spoke to us in that moment. He challenged us about our attitudes and our responses. To all that worldly stuff that was coming against us, it was a—it was one of those moments where we were in the world but not of it. 2 Corinthians verse three says, "For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does." And yes, we were engaged in a frustrating and at times bewildering process. And let me tell you that navigating away through, um, a way through a very conservative planning department is as frustrating as it gets and yet aren't we supposed to be working to a different set of standards and answerable to a higher authority we always begin our rock meetings and end them with prayer but on this day we really prayed we had come ready to pray and we began that prayer with repentance we repented of our critical thoughts and words concerning individuals in the planning department. We repented of our pride and indignation, and we asked God to bless the planning officers. Just seen Ben there, you know all about this. And we surrendered our less than lovely attitudes and judgments. And the change was remarkable, firstly in us, because we changed our hearts, and that prayer brought peace and freedom, and a timely reminder if we needed it, and we probably did, that God's in control of all of it. And I believe it brought about a tangible change in at least one person on that planning committee. We need to keep praying, and we need you all to pray with us. So we humbled ourselves and we prayed and we need to keep doing it. And Nehemiah began the process of rebuilding the walls by humbling himself and praying. And he also praised God because he loved and honoured him. And isn't that at the very heart of what we do here at All Saints? And if it isn't, then why isn't it? We do it all for him. Not just the rock project, but the whole of our witness. Lord, it's you we adore, we do it all for you. And if not, what's the point? We'd just be clanging cymbals and resounding gongs, and if you bring that old-fashioned language up to date, we'd be at best ineffective, and at worst, hypocrites. I spend a lot of time with people who are not yet Christians, Maybe somewhere along a faith journey, it's a real privilege, it's, it's a big part of my life and my family. And I've heard so many stories of disappointment and disillusionment that have come out of their experiences with religious people. And yes, churches that have honoured God with their mouths and yet their hearts were far from him. And people know the difference, don't they? They know the difference. They know truth and integrity and love when they see it, even if they can't articulate it. It all has to flow out of a heart of love for God, otherwise it won't flow at all. Nehemiah loved the Lord, even though he was in exile. He prayed and he repented, and then he used the skills and gifts that God had given him to get the job done and as he went along he prayed, he never stopped praying. God knew his heart and he provided everything that he needed. And surely all of our greatest achievements, large and small, will come out of a heart of love for God and his love back to us. We honor him by offering him all of ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our time, our skills, our gifts, and our money, by offering it all unreservedly to him in the face of a watching world. And the world is watching. It's a world in which sometimes we can feel like exiles. I mentioned earlier that my normal home is a 6.30 service, and for several weeks now, we've been following um, a series of talks on worship which has been an absolute joy. Week by week, we've been looking at what it really means to worship, not just for an hour or two of sung worship and prayer on a Sunday night, but adopting a lifestyle of worship in which worship is at the heart of everything we do on a daily basis. Our homes, our families, our jobs, our meetings, our encounters, our conversations, our grief, our heartache, every part of our life, the good bits, the bad bits, the difficult bits, we, if we offer them to God as an act of worship, and sometimes it's sacrificial, then we're letting him in to every part. It's challenging. And it occurred to me that Nehemiah is a true worshipper. It, it really is lovely. There is no... You know, we, we, we talk about different things in the morning and evening, but it's all just part of the same thing. It's, I'd really encourage you, if you don't always go to the, or you don't sometimes go to the 6.30 service, listen to those talks about worship. They've been really powerful. So for today, what can we take away from this and ponder? What can we learn from Nehemiah that's relevant to us here and now? But of course, we can obviously draw parallels with the rock project. The walls of this building aren't breached, they're not broken down, although this place certainly needs a lot of TLC. And like generations of worshippers, if we can say, come, let's rebuild the walls, we will be investing, not just in ourselves, certainly not in ourselves, we'll be investing in generations to come, and we'll be investing in our community as well. And we can all play our part. We just need to have hearts open to God's prompting. You might think, well, what what can I do for this process? Well, I don't imagine the perfume makers were the greatest at lugging rocks around, but it didn't matter, it didn't stop them. They were still out there giving it their best shot. We all have skills, we all have something to offer. But apart from the obvious parallel, As Tom pointed out last week, we can all see this in the context of any challenge we face, great or small. And I am going to ask now, (coughs) forgive me if this sounds personal, but do you have broken down walls in your lives? Do you have parts of your defences that you feel are down? Do you have parts that need building up? Alice referred to it. just a a few moments ago when she came to the front we all have parts of our lives where we feel vulnerable maybe parts that we need to build up what do they look like? well for Nehemiah it was a clear cut construction project but for, for some of us who knows what it might be it might just be an unresolved issue in our lives that means that God can't work fully through us and in us unforgiveness is a big thing I don't know why I felt prompted to mention unforgiveness, but I just did. And it may not be unforgiveness for somebody around you. It might be, but it might be that you find something in your own life hard to forgive. You might find, your, might find it hard to forgive yourself. And there may be something in our lives that's just not honoring to God, something that hinders a lifestyle of worship. Might be something going back years, I don't know. And possibly we need to repent of something, just as the rock team did that day. Maybe we need to repent of indignation or taking offence. Change of any kind is challenging, and and the process requires sensitivity and patience. For some of us, that might mean a little gentle repointing. For some of us it might mean a, a bit of a rebuilding project and we might need help to do that, but help is always around us, you know? Help is sitting next to you in the pew right now, help is at the front here, help is just a prayer away. And No matter how long we've been Christians, some of us have been Christians for decades, some of us maybe months, maybe weeks, maybe some of you out there are about to take the first step, I don't know. But faith is a living thing. I just, I just, that phrase has been going around in my head for days now. Faith is a living thing and we need to stretch it. We need to push it in order that it can flourish and grow. So that when trouble comes, and it will. When bad news comes, and it does. When real struggles confront us, as they do all of us, we'll be able to stand. And how will we respond when those times come? Well, Nehemiah took himself off and he fasted, and he mourned and he prayed. And we all have those moments where we just have to just go away and just turn our face to God and say, Lord, this is tough, but I know you're in it with me. And something really special happened to Nehemiah in that time, didn't it? In that time. We don't really know what happened in those days when Nehemiah was praying and fasting and mourning. But something amazing happened because he came out, he came back from that time, and he prayed that amazing prayer, that model of prayer, which was confident because he knew his God and he knew that God knew, knew him. It's a model we can all learn from. Nehemiah was an amazing man of God. He honored God and God used him. And we're still talking about him two and a half thousand years later. So I'd like to finish in prayer, if that's okay. Another scripture has been, actually Mark used this scripture last Sunday night, which is it's always a real encouragement to me when scriptures, more than one person in a, in a community, is, these, these scriptures are resonating with. So I'd like to pray over you. This is Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as if working for the Lord, not for men, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Father, I pray for each one of us that you'd help us to give you all of ourselves, all of our hearts, not just the bits that are on open view, but the bits we might try and hide from you the bits where we lock you out. Father, help us to give you our whole selves so that you can use us. Amen.